Welcome to Sharon Feelings. My name is Chris Sharon. Hey everyone, and welcome once again. I am excited to introduce Mr. Joshua Smith. Josh and I have met in passing, both working for Disney Cruise Line, but we've never had the chance to sit down and chat. That changes today. We share our experiences growing up as kids, our thoughts on America versus Canada, and Canada wins, obviously, (laughs) and we talk about how lucky we are to have such wonderful, loving wives. We do our best to make the most of our lives right now, even though there's so many questions yet to be answered. Josh has certainly defined the line between overthinking and trusting what's to come, navigating it with ease. As he indicates, maybe it's because of the enormous amount of pandemic-induced self-reflection, but nevertheless, we agree that without recognizing the difficult moments, we can't appreciate the truly magnificent ones. In order to get to where we want to go, we need to get through this first. Enjoy. Well, hello. Afternoon. Good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing very well. You have such a calming face. I feel better already. It's the Canadian in me. We're a natural, <laughs> we're a natural just like equalizer of emotions. It's in the bone structure. Yeah. Passed down from generation. I have that exact same <laughs> cup. I think between me and the roommates, I think we have about five of them now. <laughs> I bet. This is the, the desk cup because you can't risk spilling anything on anything expensive. <laughs> There it is. There it is. So, Josh. Joshua? Josh? Six of one after. Wow. I love it. I, uh, maybe I'll start going by Christopher. I I feel like Christopher is what you go by when somebody's mad at you. (laughs) That's exactly how I identify it. Like, that's how I knew if my mother was mad at me. If it was Joshua Smith. If she used the full name, Joshua James Michael Smith, she was furious. It's over. Game over. You're done for. <laughs> wow, man. So, what's going on? How's your day been? Day's been good. Day's been good. Uh, I actually spent most of the morning editing a practice podcast that me and two friends tried. Great. We really enjoyed doing it, but we're met with the problem that no one needs another three dudes talking about video games. So, <laughs> it's just really for fun. I'm learning how to edit a bit more in GarageBand. Yeah, yeah. How's your morning? Yeah, it's good, man. Um, yeah, just uh, was doing some editing on a previous episode, and uh, that's about it. I was playing with some of my old recording equipment because I haven't really taken it out of the box since we moved in to our new place, and it's from like 2008. You know what I mean? When I was in high school and like getting into recording music for the first time and to my surprise it still works it still connects uh you know so i was gonna try to do some different things with how i record the episodes but um it's tough man doing it uh you know over the phone and trying to not to get too much feedback and everything but at the end of the day you edit it a little bit i figure it's more important for people to listen than it is for the quality to be perfect you know i can agree with that yeah yeah, especially, especially right now. Like every time I watch, kind of, I'm sure you've seen. There's been half a dozen, to many more than that. Like put together productions of things, or like virtual musicals, or like benefits done online. And there's always hiccups. There's always technological problems because you have a lot of people that are not technically technologically driven yeah. doing that sort of thing. And so people complain. It's like, oh, well, it was slow in this. And I was like, I don't know. Maybe we could just cut everyone some slack. <laughs> Patty Lapone is doing her first live stream ever (laughs) it's so real that's a good point you bring up because like maybe this this time has given us the opportunity to like you know give a little grace to some people you know because i i even got into a habit especially i think going to theater school where you get this competitive edge and everything has to be like perfect to this certain standard and now I think we're like being, okay, you know, these are human beings just like trying to do their best right now. Like, let's just enjoy it for what the concept is, not just, you know, oh, you know, like I got my notepad out trying to critique it. I did hear something kind of wonderful that pops in my head every time me and Emily and the roommates will sit there and like watch a movie and we'll critique it because, you know, we're four artists. <laughs> of course. With, with no creative output. But <laughs> uh, it's that if you are critiquing something really hard, it's likely because you loved it and you wanted it and you knew it could just be a bit better you know 
I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's I identify with that completely. I feel like that's all I ever wanted when I was sort of critique. I get so passionate about stuff, you know, just too much sometimes. Just like so fired up about, you know, certain things, specifically with like acting performances or movies or stuff like that. And I and I think it is really just because like one, I wanna be there, you know, with them on set or like in the movie, or two, it's just like come on, like, you know, I, my passion for it is just so deep. I feel like, though, I can never watch movies the same way having, like, done background work or just acting in general <laughs> because I'm always yeah. like, oh, I want to... And now Kristen's doing it more and more. It's hilarious. I used to do it all the time. We watch TV shows, and now Kristen's like, you know, I wonder how they shot that <laughs> in the middle of the episode. And I'm like, me too! <laughs> So that's good. Chill day and everything's good. You're in New York City and Emily's good and you guys were let go of work again. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, December 14th, they closed the indoor dining and our boss, our manager, is a very um, aware guy of everyone's situation. Like he kind of went around and nosed around to see who would qualify for unemployment, who wouldn't. Because we have uh, one of my good friends who works there is, I actually just found this out through this, is he is a guy who's overstayed on a student visa and he was midway through the process of becoming an American citizen and then it got slowed down at the Trump administration and then through this pandemic it's gotten slowed down even further so my boss kept him on kept another guy on and everyone else went uh, went off for a little while until business picks back up enough to need more than two employees yeah yeah it's it's a tough time I can imagine that uh, it's pretty hard for everyone involved and in, in, especially in the restaurant business I feel through working, I started working back there in end of June, I think, and it was really interesting to watch kind of the first wave of people come back were kind of the normal people who were like, oh my gosh, thank you so much, you're amazing, you're uh, you're fantastic, like you guys are heroes, and I'm like, I'm not, but thanks. <laughs> but then like as the numbers kind of started going back up, you saw more and more of the, the regular people who, you know, were being socially conscious and they're like, well, I'm not going to risk this guy's life for a burger and stuff like that, so... The patrons shifted to people that didn't care or sometimes didn't believe it. Uh, so as much as I wish I was employed again, there is a bit of a relief not having to be dealing with those people. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. I It still just blows my mind. I, as much as I'm trying to normalize all of this and just sort of move forward and accept, you know, this new version of life, it's it still just blows my mind that we're just still dealing with it. I guess I wish it was different. Yeah, it's living through another major historical event. <laughs> just very exciting. And uh, what's it like? Okay, so I got to ask, like, what's it like, you know, being from Canada and just sort of watching now <laughs> from the point of view of America you know, I, I don't know if, if, it, if maybe I idolize a place like Canada because it always seems to me like they're 10 steps ahead of America in terms of like everything for their people. But has your opinion of it changed in that way? or it's, it's definitely changed a few times because in the beginning, there was definitely like I talked to my Canadian friends and they were like, Canada's doing a great job. They've got social programs started really quick. They have a program served, which is like, boosted unemployment kind of like what america had for the first eight weeks they shut everything down and for a while canada had very few cases just because they were lucky enough that the few cases they got they were able to track very quickly and then they shut everything out at the same time america did and you know they didn't have a hot spot like at one point in mid the summer the toronto hospitals had no icu covid cases at all wow however that has turned i think especially in my home province of ontario there's there's kind of that kind of like what happened in the rest of America after all of America watched New York like mm. one summer hit we were like ah it's over <laughs> we didn't have to deal with it so it's not real and then all the places like Texas and Arkansas and North Carolina uh, all of a sudden they had problems and that's kind of what's happened in Ontario like when you compare case numbers to New York like even now they're they're minuscule in comparison but like I think they're hitting their highest number of cases in Ontario and uh, they've gone back into a full lockdown which I think means that there's no restaurants at all. There's just takeout. There's, I think all schools have to be online, like kind of like what it was in March. But. Yeah. Yeah, it's nuts. It feels like <laughs> we're just kind of repeating this cycle again. You know, here we are coming up 
on the year mark almost and then it's just sort of we're doing the same thing over again you know like yeah it see it really seems like there's gonna be a i mean maybe we'll get lucky and the historical event we will next witness is like the rapid vaccination you know <laughs> right like maybe it'll be like when they discovered the vaccine for polio and we'll just watch it get rolled out through the through you know Maybe they'll set up army bases in, in the middle of Times Square. You just come in and they jab you and get out. <laughs> I don't know. That's one thing I will say that America probably has an advantage over Canada right now because Canada is also having vaccine supply issues. Oh, okay. America is not afraid, afraid to buy its way out of this problem. <laughs> right. Like New York is like trying to negotiate with Pfizer directly. Like they like the U.S. is going to buy their way to health. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Because the the debt is already so massive. Who cares? Another few billion dollars. It's a made up number. That's <laughs> never. It's never gonna get to zero. So I don't know why we care about it. It's. Uh... <laughs> oh man, uh, we've been watching um, "Pretend It's a City." The sort of it's like a limited series, kind of like a documentary, but it's more of like an interview style. It's with Martin Scorsese is like the producer of it, and he's talking with Fran Lebowitz. Oh my roommates have been watching it. yeah it's it's great i mean especially just like living in new york city and she's been there her whole life so her perspective of it is just so vast and it's just really cool it's got a lot of really old shots of new york and just like a lot of history and it's really funny too and, and witty and uh, i think you'd enjoy it for sure but yeah she's <laughs> she's talking about trying to convince her friends to move to new york city because they're not sure where to go or you know they want to change and everything and their major concern is that it's too expensive to live in New York City. And she's like, L- let me just tell you, like, nobody can afford to live in New York City. Nobody can afford to live in New York City. And yet, 8 million people do. <laughs> you know, like, you figure it out, you know, you get here and you realize that you love it here and you want to stay and then you make it happen. And that's a concept that I definitely was not able to grasp my whole life really until meeting Kristen and when we decided to move back to the city in September I was pretty scared you know what I mean like I I was scared for like COVID reasons but I was also scared for like I have no job I have no future of a job I know it's going to cost a certain amount of money at the very least you know what am I doing like I'm basically just throwing this money away but I, I feel like I say this on every episode but truly it's been the best decision we've ever made as a couple and for myself as well. Like I, I just absolutely love it here. And like, I feel like I'm embodying that concept that like, if you love the place you're in, you'll make it work. And I think that there's merit to that in the idea that I used to be very plan this, do this, this certain way, very type a, very, everything had to be in, in its order And I still have tendencies of that, but honestly, living here and feeling the joy of living here has sort of helped that mellow out a little bit. I mean, New York, even even in pandemic times, New York is like no other place. Yeah. I remember moving here and just all of a sudden, a friend of mine named Ben Kamenzuli put it best. He was like, I've never had more confidence than when I'm in New York. (laughs) Like you just kind of get weirdly blessed with like an energy and a confidence you've never had before. Yes, yes. It, it's a good way to describe it, like an energy. It really is. And, and, I, and I don't know that you could ever really feel it unless you spend time here. Thirty-one years ago, <laughs> my mother and father made a terrible mistake. That's actually, I, I, I've talked, one of my favorite things about my own life story is my mother has told me straight up, she was like, oh, you were a mistake. I was... Oh, you were an accident, which is fine. You know, I, I think I assume I assume a lot more people are accidents. They just have nicer parents. <laughs> but it kind of got worse when I realized my mother was a practicing nurse. So for her to mess up her birth control is actually like quite bad. Quite, quite funny. <laughs> yeah, I was born in Alberta, which I don't know if you know what Alberta is in Canada. Alberta is like our Texas. Okay. It's it's where all the oil is. It is where two of our biggest cities, Edmonton and Calgary, are. It is probably one of the most beautiful provinces. It is also, like, the most conservative province. Okay. And we were there because my dad was in the Air Force, and we got stationed in Cold Lake, Alberta, for a few years. And I don't remember any of it. 
because it was all we moved away when I was three. Okay. We moved to southern Ontario and we've been we bounced around southern Ontario for a bit to an airbase in Trenton, Ontario. And then when I was almost ten, my dad decided he wanted to get out of the Air Force and we moved to London, Ontario, where I spent the rest of my life until until I moved to Toronto and then New York. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what was it like having your dad in the Air Force? Was he traveling a lot or was he working like out of a base? He he was a mechanic for I think F fourteens. If he listens to this, he'll text me and correct me. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, he traveled a decent amount, from what I remember, but he didn't travel for like the reasons you would think in the Air Force. He was a six foot four guy, and around that time, the Air Force had a lot of team sports that they would play against other Air Forces. So he went to like Italy and and Germany to play volleyball. <laughs> That's crazy. And you know, did okay. Uh, my father's a very athletic, like if you saw him and then looked at me, you'd be like, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> he rose a lot now. He like, before COVID, he like was part of teams and stuff like that. But yeah, he didn't travel too, too much. And then it really seemed when he wanted to get out of the Air Force, it was like, okay, we want to like settle down and make sure we're not going to be moved around another three times. Yeah, yeah. Was it, do you remember sort of all that moving around, like once you got to Ontario or anything? I remember moving from Frankfurt to London because that was that was probably the most jarring move of my life because that was, I was about to turn 10 and that's kind of where you, you start to like, your friendships actually matter to you. It's not just like who is in your general realm at a time <laughs> as your friend. But I had just fallen in love with Pokemon, so I was I was pretty happy as long as I had a Game Boy. But yeah, moved to London, and then that was kind of uh, a shift in my life that kind of set the pace for the next ever, because I kind of went from being a very small nerd in an Air Force base with a bunch of other nerds to being in a city, kind of, with London, Ontario's a city, and and you know not having any friends and kind of learning how to how to live. Not live on your own, because I was nine. Right. But, like, being able to, to live with yourself and, like, you know, I got into reading a lot. I got into video games a lot more. And, uh, yeah, you just kind of try and try and develop those social skills as you can. And and you have a younger sister, so how much younger is she? Was she sort of a part of your life? Like She was three years younger than me. At that time in our life, we did not get along very well. Right, right, right. I don't. I look back on that time, and I wonder sometimes if it's because, like, you know, all the media in the '90s was like, "Boy, or brothers and sisters aren't friends." Like, yeah, everything's conflict. Yes. I don't know if, I, if if no one had told me to fight with her, I don't know if I would have. Wow. Uh, I mean, my sister was also a very bratty child. Okay. Okay. I actually distinctly have a memory of like the day we kind of stopped getting along and started fighting. Okay. Which is the day she cut her own hair, which she was like three and a half. She got mad at my dad, had a fight with him, went to her room, mom couldn't find the scissors, and then she emerged and she had, like, cut half her hair off. And so to fix it, they had to take her to the first choice, and she got a mushroom cut, and that's, like, the day it all went wrong. <laughs> and I can't blame her, because if I had been hoisted a mushroom cut, I would be pissed off as well. <laughs> Just hate the world. Mm-hmm. So funny. So, so when did it sort of get back on track for you two, then? Later high school, Yeah, I think. Because we weren't terribly close when she was in later elementary school and I was in high school. But once she kind of entered her first year of high school and I was in my last couple, we started to get along more as we were taking our first steps into adulthood as, like, we both worked. You know, she started working at Tim Hortons and I was already on, like, my third part-time job. And, and then ever since then, it's been it's been smooth. Yeah, we've developed a pretty good adult relationship, which I, I'm always very proud of her. Especially when, you know, she might have to bail out her actor brother <laughs> you know those weird guilty memories you have of like a chat when you were a kid and you're like you know you can rationalize and be like i didn't know any better i didn't do this but all those ones with my sister where like i treated my sister poorly and i felt so bad about it later those are the ones that i'm like that probably shaped my whole environment of how i treat anyone sure but i was also pretty lucky like my sister my mother and also when i moved to london i realized i wasn't good at being friends with many of the boys my age mm. Like, aside from, like, Pokemon, I had nothing to talk to them about. Sure. Because I was also the age that they were getting into sports and stuff like that, and I was like, I, hockey, nope, I have no idea. Yeah. So all of my friends around that time were girls. Emily is the person who is like, we should do this, we should do this, we should do this, and I'm like, sure. 
but whenever we have like a, a serious conversation of like, would you want to, you know, we have back and forth on whether or not we will uh, have kids to settle down in America or whether or not we'll settle down and have kids in Canada. And I am on the side of Canada. Of course. But I also understand like, you know, if we are in New York and one of our careers starts going places and we have the money and the stability to raise a family here, sure. I am just more of the, Emily is more of the, I'm going to set a goal and I'm going to achieve it. And I'm more of the, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to seek opportunities, but I'm also going to remain flexible because this is a volatile industry. Sure, sure. This year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think, yeah, it's, wow, it's really good that you guys are partners then because I feel like you need a little bit of both to sort of navigate this industry specifically, but really just like life. So there's only like four musical theater schools in Canada. One, and one of them is the prestigious one. It's the one where most of the Canadian musical theater actors that you'll see in shows come from. It's called Sheridan. I didn't go to Sheridan. I went to this little college called St. Clair College, which did give me a decent education, but I will even honestly reflect on my time there and be like, wow, I, I got through that mostly because I was one of like four straight males that didn't have a terribly complicated situation. I enjoyed my time there, had a great time, learned a lot, but probably could have learned more if I, if I look back on that time. So a couple months after college, I moved to Toronto with a friend of mine. We found a basement apartment. It cost like $400 a month for each of us. It was barely in Toronto. It was an hour and 15 minute subway ride into Toronto. So we were thrilled to pretend like we were living in the city. It'd be, it'd be the equivalent of like living out near JFK or like living out near one of the airports in New York City or living in Jersey and being like, I live in New York. Like, you don't. Got there and I had gotten lucky. I had been picked up and signed by an agent out of my third year showcase, but I was picked up because my agency was trying to start to include more theater. Like they were primarily a model and film agency and they were trying to branch into theater. So I was one of like a dozen people they picked up that year. Mm. And then that agency folded because of a lawsuit, but the new agency that emerged out of it, which was hero artist, which is now a great agency in Toronto. They kept me on, but I literally met the new agency and they're like okay so you're part of our agency and i was like like you've never seen me perform you're taking this all on faith but we're gonna do it yeah and then right after that there was a terrible storm in toronto and our basement apartment was flooded and we lost most of our stuff so me and my friend brianna just kind of like we couch surfed for about i think i was technically homeless for about a month jeez uh couch surfing around trying to find apartments also doing that with like no one it's the dumbest thing in the world i had no job at that time like not a theater job not a joe job nothing and i was like looking for people to take me to their apartments i look back on that and go why would i i wouldn't have trusted me like this <laughs> i i weirdly remember being very dead set on like well this is just a, a hiccup i just have to find a new apartment and i'll get back to my lovely life of auditioning for commercials i'll never get hired at. <laughs> i got a friend of mine reached out and said that her bedroom at her mom's place, uh, her mom was like, uh, I can't remember what it's called when you rented a room in a, in, a, in a house like that, but she was renting the room for uh, just temporary people staying. So I got a room there for a month, and then while trying to figure out my next move, a friend of mine asked me to go to the DCL audition with her, and it was a dance audition. And I was like, they, I was looking at the, the requirements, and I was like, this is ballet. I'm like terrible at ballet. <laughs> But I went with her to support her, and we both made it through the first cut, and I was lucky there was, like, no men at this audition. Like, there were six guys, and I was the only one that made it through, because the other five guys were not as good as me. Or the wrong height. I'm sure it was a height. <laughs> but I got through the second round, did okay in the dance, and they pulled me aside, and they had me read a bunch of men's monologues. And I got the call a week later. Didn't really understand what the job was, but someone was going to pay me money, and right. they move out of the... The border house, bordering. That's what it's called. Bordering, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's that's so crazy, man. I I connect with that so deeply. I feel like DCL sort of came in and swooped into my life like right at the right time as well. Like I and I wasn't really planning for it either. I think when I first my first contract, a lot of people there were like had already worked for the company in some way or had dreamt about working for the company in some way. 
I hadn't even been to Disney World until I started working for the company, you know what I mean? So, I mean, I love Disney in the sense that, you know, any sort of kid growing up in the 90s loves Disney. But, like, yeah, it was never, like, a dream of mine. But I can remember distinctly the summer after I graduated, I was working a job. It was, like, a, a summer season at a theater in New Hampshire. And there was just this moment where I'm I'm sitting on my back, like, looking up at the sky, like, night sky, totally, like, cliche just like wishing for like my life to be taken somewhere else I just like didn't want to be in this version of my life anymore you know what I mean like I just wanted to break out of it I guess and just like go away like get out you know what I mean like that was that was sort of the energy I was putting out into the universe and then yeah like a month later DCL just sort of happened it was a audition that I got from an agent I said why not might as well go and yeah, got the call a week later, just like you, man. It was crazy. Like, and then all of a sudden, life changed. So, so you, so you get the job, you go. I guess you didn't. You only had to go an hour and fifteen minutes in to. Uh, or where, where? Oh, yeah. I remember Stephen. They send you those email things of like, where do you? What airport is closest to you? And like, what airport do you want to fly into? And I was looking. I was like, what airport is closest to you? And I was like, well, I guess it's the Toronto International Airport. <laughs> and then it was like, airport that you want to fly into. I was like. Toronto International Airport. And then Stephen emailed me later being like, what is this? What's happening? They offered to reimburse me for a taxi ride, which which I did not take them up on because I was nervous. So I just took the streetcar down. Okay. It wasn't until later that I I actually like took them up on the taxi ride from the apartment I had later when I lived in Toronto over to the Rosemont. Yeah, absolutely. Um, What what was it like? Because like my, my vision of Toronto, I think, is skewed because I was only ever there when I'm working for DCL. You lived in the best part of Toronto. <laughs> like, it's always very funny to me because I've done, I did four Disney contracts and so every time I've already lived, I've lived in Toronto all over the place. I've lived in Parkdale, I've lived in, uh, most of the time in Greektown, but I've lived at the edges of Toronto, I've lived down in the distillery district. So, whenever I'm there with people who are like, we want to explore Toronto, I'm like, yes, let's go. Okay, we're going to go to this cool-ass place in the junction, we're going to take the subway, and I'm like, the subway? <laughs> they really just want to explore anywhere between, like, Spadina and the Eaton Center Mall. Right. Which is fine. There's a lot of great stuff in there, yeah. but there's a lot better stuff if you go a little further. On my last contract, Emily came up, we were on M37 together, and Emily came up early because she got asked to come in three weeks early to help one of the Broadway guest artists on another contract. And Emily, Emily did that a couple times, I think because someone in creative was like, oh, she's got a boyfriend up here. We'll just bring her up, keep her busy. Excellent favor. But she was up early, and so I spent a lot of time visiting her at the Rosemont or spending the nights at the Rosemont. Don't tell security. And right around the time, and so there's that week where the main stage get there, and the characters don't have to get there next week, but I was around all the time. So I met a lot of the main stage, and I was talking to Emily about taking them out for a thing that happens in Toronto called Nuit Blanche, which is a beautiful arts festival that happens all over the city. It's like a huge event. And basically the what most Torontonians do is they find a way to bring alcohol with them. You like fill a coffee cup or you fill a flask or you fill a cane and you just walk around all these art exhibits and it's crazy. It's beautiful and surreal and you'll often find like musicians on the way and there's food trucks all the way. It's a huge walk. And so I told Emily like, oh yeah, we'll go. Why don't we go? And then Emily's roommate at the time, also in the cast, was like, oh, can I come too? And I think she was going to bring one of the other friends. And then so... The Thursday before the Friday night Louis Blanche, I was assuming I was taking those four around on the walk, and then the next day, Emily texted me, she's like, everyone's really excited to go, and I said, what do you mean by everyone? <laughs> so I took almost the full cast on a walk, like, around downtown Toronto, and I had planned, like, we're gonna do a, it's gonna be a couple hours, dress warm, like, we're gonna see so much cool stuff. We got, like, three art installations, and then everyone's like, we're bored, we're gonna go home now. <laughs> We don't want to go further than the, the three-block radius. I thought that was a pretty good representation of, like, how the Rosemont is such a wonderful place, and they've done an excellent job. Like, I feel like that's the best thing Disney does for you is they're like, here's this beautiful Toronto bubble. You're going to have a great time for six weeks, and then you're going to get on this can and have mixed, mixed reviews from there. But Did you meet Emily on that first contract? Uh, no, I met her technically on my second. Okay. Although, well, technically, I did meet her on the first contract. She was in the opposite cast to me. She was on The Wonder. Okay. So I did. I didn't see her. I didn't meet her at some point. But we don't. Neither of us really remember too much. Right. That we didn't interact with each other's cast too much. Right. Right. But on the end of my second contract, I did a replacement on The Wonder, and she 
came to visit a friend on the ship. She went and sailed. So the first the first meeting I ever had of my my lovely future wife was her friend was friends with Cinderella at that time, and so she brought a costume to meet Cinderella, uh, where she dressed up like Gus Gus. So she had like a yellow vest and ears and a hat. And so I remember like looking. I was greeting Princess Gathering, and this weird blonde girl was dressed like Gus Gus and doing the voice and everything. And I was just. <laughs> Huh. You were like, that's the one for me. That's the one right there. <laughs> From what I was told later, Emily thought I was cute and confided in her friend Ebony. Ebony, who was my character captain, basically yelled at me down a hallway that Emily thought I was cute. Of course. We chattered a bit at a St. Patrick's Day event in the in the D Lounge. Wow, where where dreams come true. Where dreams come true. I watched her drunkenly sing a duet with Ebony to uh, Galinda and Alphabet song from Wicked at like two in the morning. Another another moment I was like, that's the yes. girl for me. Another light bulb moment. But we really started chatting when we both found out we were going to be on the dream contract after. Uh, there was about a two month break between the end of that contract and the beginning of the dream contract and we started chatting online we messaged each other back and forth and I made plans to visit New York but I just, I actually just missed her. She had like gone home to upstate New York to spend time with her family before going on the contract. But she asked me out on a date the week before my contract started when she was up there and I technically wasn't. And yeah. Wow. She she claims that she planned it that way so no one else in the cast could meet me. <laughs> she she calls dibs, just wanted to lock it in before uh yeah. <laughs> took care of it. Honestly, we flirted a bit when she visited on The Wonder, but there was nothing substantial to it. We didn't really get to spend too much time together. Sure. It was just kind of like, oh, yeah, that girl's nice and very pretty. But, uh, yeah, when we started chatting before the dream, like, when we, she messaged me, I think, a couple days after we both confirmed our contracts. Wow. And she was her absolutely charming self. And, yeah. I've always said that Disney contracts are kind of unique in a certain way. Like, they put you... If you work at it, you can gain an incredible confidence. And, and and that definitely happened for me, but someone who I watched that affect even more profoundly was Emily. She, in our last contract, was Elsa on stage, and so she got to sing Let It Go every night, and she kills that song. Mm-hmm. Like, she's told me, she's like, that song sits right in my sweet spot. Like, mm-hmm. I can kill it, no problem. So she left that contract with a lot of boosted confidence, because basically anytime she sang that song, friends who were visiting friends or her cast would just be like, you are so good and yeah even watching her like hit the audition scene after that contract like it was a whole new ball game for her i remember coming off of my first contract and coming back to toronto like not only having the security of having some money under my belt but also i felt like i booked something i booked something real i can actually do this because the only thing i had booked before that was a very bad production of rent which i only got in because the music director was a friend of mine and it was a theater company that was like, they hired the same 15 people for every production. And they, they did not like me, and I didn't like them. So. <laughs> didn't want to didn't wanna count that in the journey. No, that's off the resume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, yeah. so what was, what was the goal? You know what I mean? Like, sort of where did you see your career and life going, like, sort of out of college into the professional world? And did that sort of change because of Disney? or It changed a few times because of Disney. I, uh... Like I said, Disney kind of gives you a weird confidence and it boosts your want. Maybe that's because you're listening to like a hundred I want songs a night. But I remember, especially on my last contract, I was very interested in becoming a character manager. I was character captain and I did a bunch of the leadership training they do. I think Kristen did the same. Uh And those programs really do instill like, we're going to train you up. You're going to be the next generation. They never hire anyone I think now they've hired a couple people and they've actually put a few female character managers in place which I'm very grateful for because yeah. I think that was a long time coming but yeah especially after I left that contract I was like I don't know why I wanted to do that I I, I don't really want to do five months six month at a time contracts just like shuffling papers and fighting with people but there is that thing it was like I think there's something cozy about the Disney bubble that is very attractive like I'm sure you know half a dozen people that did contracts on the ship shunted over to Orlando bought a house, performed six times a week, resting on a bank. But all those people I talked to, it's like once you kind of get in that routine of like, yeah, I'm doing five shows a week or or four days a week at Disney and I own the house and there's 
nothing else to do in Orlando. Yeah. Except go to Disney World. Yeah. I always thought of that as a, a very American style ideal of like your life is your job. Mm-hmm. Um, not that it's much better in Canada. Like I, I know many Canadians that are like, if I didn't have my job, I don't know what I'd do. But mm-hmm. yeah, this year has definitely been a lesson in figuring out what your identity is and who you are as a person without whether it's struggling your Joe job or going to auditions every other day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it, it is, I, I can remember my parents saying when I, when I told them I first wanted to study musical theater and that I decided this was going to be my new career path because before then I wanted to be a math teacher was what I wanted to do, a, math, a high school math teacher. When I finally told them, you know, they were super supportive, but I remember them saying something like, are you sure you want to turn your passion into like a job, you know? And I was like, well, yeah, I do. Shut up. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, yeah, obviously that's what I'm trying to do. Like, you know, you're 16. You're yeah. like, I know I'm right. I'm going to do it. I watched Rent. Yeah. Honestly, that's really, that's really smart parenting. Yeah. Because like, I think, I think so many people, especially in our line of work right now are dealing with in this year, you know, dealing with the fact that like their passion is their job almost to the point of like where everything is content, you know, mm-hmm. to some people, mm-hmm. like every picture you take goes on social media. Every word you speak is on a podcast. This is a bad example. Uh, <laughs> you know, so like if your passion is also your, your work, I, I truly think that old adage that like if you love your job or if you if your passion is your job you'll never work a day in your life it's like no you will feel weirdly tied to it and you'll feel less of yourself when you fail because it's like a reflection of yourself so i think even in passion jobs and creative jobs you really have to find boundaries to yourself and hopefully when things return in a way that we can act and audition and create safely we will be more appreciative of that like did you and Kristen have much of a you guys were long distance for a decent chunk of your relationship right well so we met on we met on the ship on my first contract and then we did another contract together so we were together for almost two years and then we moved to New York and we were both sort of in and out doing jobs she was on a different tour with Disney and I was doing other regional gigs so we weren't together too much And then this past year, you know, before COVID, I was on the ship again, but she wasn't. So that was sort of the longest period of time that we had to go without seeing each other. But we always tried to plan trips and stuff. But yeah, it's been it's been up and down all over the place since we started. I don't know if you feel the same way I do, but I've always because me and Emily did long distance between the ships like we did, I think, eight months long distance between contracts on our first time. And then we were long distance for almost three years before I moved to New York. Wow. It's made us be able to appreciate just like living in the same place and like waking up next to each other in a whole different way that I I hope is like something we'll hang on to throughout our lives. And I hope that like when we get back to theater and we get back to be able to be in each other's bubbles, we'll appreciate that even more than we did before. Today's episode is featuring Harlem Hops, serving the widest array and freshest selection of beers in the heart of Harlem, New York. In June 2018, Kevin Bradford, Stacey Lee, and Kim Harris opened Harlem Hops, making it the first craft beer bar in Manhattan to be 100% owned by African Americans. Harlem Hops works with the finest local breweries to develop a collection of innovative beers to taste and explore. Open seven days a week, offering beer, booze, bites, and beets, Harlem Hops has opened its doors for you. If you're not in the New York City area but would still like to support, visit HarlemHops.com to purchase custom merchandise and gift cards. You can also show support by donating to Harlem Hopes, their nonprofit organization providing resources and financial assistance to high school students in need. Visit at Harlem Hopes on Instagram for more information and let's build a brighter future. I mean, we can be optimistic that, you know, if, if history repeats itself, the 20s will be just a fucking great time. Yeah. Like, we're going to get out of this. We're going to be making big bucks as all the productions open up. We're going to be booking all over the place. We're going to be partying in between productions. <laughs> it's going to be great. Yeah. We're going to spend this money until the country's great again. I don't know. Yeah, right. You know, we're kind of finally at a point where we can look forward to what is coming, whether that be in the next couple months, whether that be in the next six months. You know, when we went into lockdown, we said the same thing. I think all artists said, them. like, okay, well, now's 
Now I'm going to work on my craft. I'm going to make my reel, and I'm going to learn 10 monologues, and I'm going to build my book out. But, you know, unless you were the most driven person in the world, that was utter insanity to consider you could do that as you're looking out the window and the world's on fire. You're like, I'm going to learn another song from Annie, but that'll, that'll solve this problem. People are dying by a rapid amount, but I'm just going to, if I learn La Vie Bohème by myself, I'll do all the parts and I'll create this weird video and I'll solve, you know, I'm very, I admire anyone that can be creative in that time, but uh, we, that was definitely not us. Us was just 300 hours of Animal Crossing and <laughs> Tiger King. Yeah. But now we're at a point where we're looking forward like, okay, well, reasonably we might be auditioning for stuff in the next couple months. So now um, Emily's actually even been giving me voice lessons because I, I am not a very good singer. She is obviously, you know, fantastic. Oh, amazing. Um, so it's, it's nice to kind of work on stuff now with some goalposts in the distance that seem somewhat attainable. Sure, sure. That is so funny. I was cracking up that whole time because you just absolutely hit the nail on the head. I had a friend of mine message the other day. She, she just signed a contract at like a survival job because she knows she's not going to be acting for the next couple of months. She's working as like an office manager. And she messaged me. She said, like, I don't feel like an actor right now. Like, I know it's not true, but, like, I feel like I'm really, like, cutting a cord or something like that. And I, we chatted out, and I said something that I, I wish I'd written down, but it was akin to, you are not you are not just an actor right now. You are also a survivor right now. If you want to act in the future, you have to survive this. And then you got to do that whichever way you know how, whether that's taking a Joe job so you can pay the bills or whether that's, redoing your animal crossing town so that you can mentally survive to next week yeah yeah absolutely i i hear myself repeating this theme that i i really want to get rid of even just verbalizing and i want it to be absolutely gone from my psyche and my vocabulary of just like i am not enough or i didn't do enough or i'm running out of time just like that philosophy, I just want to get rid of it. That's my goal. One of them for this year, I think, is to just like in a healthy way, get rid of that. And it's a good goal. Yeah, man. I don't know. You know, I don't know. Do you do you sort of deal with stuff like that? Um, no, I'm pretty. I'm pretty good at just shipping my work half-assedly <laughs> off to wherever it needs to go. No, my problem is always starting the work. Like that's always my thing. Um, okay. Once I, once I get over that hump, I'm just like, eh, this is fine. Honestly, she's going to do better than me in this career. I'm, I'm getting ready to be a house husband. Like, I'm like, listen, your Broadway career takes off. You're doing eight shows a week. The house will be clean. The kids will be fed. And I will make you dinner every night. I swear to you. Yes, yes. yes. On the same way. I'm like, let's go. I'm ready. I got the apron and everything. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be working out. I'll be doing the, the Instagram videos with like a baby Bjorn with the baby on my back. I'll be doing push-ups. Yeah. I'll be on Disney Dilf's Instagram. <laughs> I'm ready. So me and Emily have definitely talked about like having a kid at some point. She counters me. She's like, we should have three. I'm like, no. That's... <laughs> That's especially three with half of your genetics. Are you insane? Kristen says, I want to have twins. I'm like, who wants to have twins? Emily's brothers are twins, and I'm terrified. <laughs> so I'm like, let's do one, and then she'll probably have twins, and then we can just stop. <laughs> there. Yeah, I definitely, like, I'm a very realist, kind of similar to my philosophy on careers. It's like, you know, I'm going to look for opportunities. I just want to be stable when we eventually have a kid. My family at one point went through some monetary trouble, and I watched both my parents like work extremely hard to make sure we were taken care of. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I to this day can't thank them enough or love them enough for for the for going through the hardship that that was. But like that's the thing that worries me, you know, is like I never want to be a parent that has to work eighty hours a week to make sure things are taken care of. Yeah, I want to be able to be a parent that can be present and. My parents were absolutely present. It just, you know, it was spending weekends with my dad driving around and doing work. I, I just want to be in a place where I feel like I could provide for the kid well enough that they feel secure and happy. Yeah. Whether or not, you know, I write a book and sell it for a million dollars next year, whether or not that happens next year or whether or not that happens like a little later in my 30s, you know, it doesn't particularly matter to me. I've also started trying to convince Emily, like, we could have a baby or we could get eight gold retrievers. <laughs> Either, either either is an equal amount of responsibility. Yeah, truly, truly. I know things now, and I, I am 
mentally aware and and kind of emotionally stable to a point where I'm like, oh, I wish I had this mindset five years ago. You know, I don't worry so much about what people think of me. I don't worry so much about like when things are going to happen in my life. I'm not over planning. But at the same time, I turned 30 and then I instantly started having problems physically. That is a, a terrible curse you get to look forward to is it's like a joke that every over 30 person tells you but it is absolutely true <laughs> i woke up the day after i turned 30 and like my ankles hurt it's like, this has <laughs> never happened before but aside from that i'm in a very good mindset and like i don't know maybe it's the year and a half of downtime we've had right but i am i am excited to get back out there Before COVID, there are absolutely days where you just don't feel like a person. You just don't want to do it. When I lived in Toronto the year before I moved here, I was even kind of self-examining my own behavior and starting to feel like what was not healthy, what was better habits to get into. But especially through this year, like there are days where we, you know, there are days where we've tried to like, we're going to get up at eight o'clock and we're going to eat right away so we can go to bed at a decent time. And Mm -hmm. we're going to try and go for a nice long walk and do help. But there's absolutely days where we're like, we're going to sit in bed and do nothing. Mm -hmm. We're just going to, we've watched all of Golden Girls and we're going to order food. And yeah, as as many days as there are where I'm like, I feel creative, I'm going to write, I'm going to get some stuff done i'm gonna work for myself there are equal amount of days where it's just i am gonna scroll my phone i'm going to give in to this weird doom feeling as i read twitter yeah. and uh you know have a headache all day and feel <laughs> crappy and and weak ankles yep yep <laughs> constantly yeah. i think if you don't acknowledge those days and occasionally have a day where you're like i've given up you can't recognize when you have the good days and then make the most of them. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it, man. I... And Emily is such a person that, like, we kind of balance each other out in that sense as well. If she's in a, a doom spiral, I'm pretty good at coaxing her back out. And if I'm in a doom spiral, she'll, like, you know, just kind of take care of me until that wears off. And it's it's good to have a partner who looks out for you and, and is able to sense when those are happening. Yeah, for sure. I think it was right after we got engaged... I had my first like losing Emily nightmare and I think that lives in a place of like you know I've always felt like my brain is always trying to figure out how to like harm me the most and I think after I got engaged Emily it was like oh this is perfect we can really mess with them there I life will absolutely go on if anything ever happens to Emily but like I can't imagine what it will be it's all it's it's that deep-seated fear of like you know what's the worst thing that could happen to me? well this yeah yeah sure when I when I ever say like my biggest worry is I lose Emily it's always a terrible accident I don't believe she's gonna run off with Hugh Jackman <laughs> because I'm very lucky that she's an expressive person I know exactly how much she loves me right um, right to the point where it's scary like I think she's going to you know chop me up and leave me in the basement somewhere because she loves me so much <laughs> which is horrifying are um, there moments or or have there been moments where you're like do I deserve this right now? What did I do to get so lucky? Sort of. I absolutely do not deserve my wife. <laughs> I've, I've tricked her into this. Her her mom actually for the first almost six months we started dating. Her mom thought I was like just dating her to get a visa. <laughs> and at that point, I had no interest in moving to America. I was like, you could not pay me. Right, right. Absolutely not. She has since. She has since grown affectionate of me and her mom is less suspicious of me yeah that's well that's good we made progress yeah yeah before we go i'm I'm interested in uh in this novel that you're writing i want to hear all about it i'm aiming for grocery store romance trash (laughs) it's a strange amalgamation of all of the weird it really is exposition the book because every cruise ship person I've, i've shown it to the first five chapters are like you are explaining all the things I already know. Like, just describing the weird differences of being on that tin can and your changes of life and what that is. But yeah, whether or not anything ever comes of it, I'm extremely proud that I actually wrote 125,000 words. Editing it is the worst job in the world. Like, going back, especially because I started this thing in 2017, 2018, and so my writing, I'd like to think, has improved a fair amount over two years. So going back to those first couple chapters that I wrote when I was 27, I'm just like, 
absolute trash. <laughs> That's great. So is it like other than the the sort of editing they have to do, it's done in the sense of like a draft? I have a I have a very bad first draft. Okay, that is, that is what I have it printed off in a in a discounted bought Staples binder. Over the course of the pandemic, I I finished it. I think last February, February twenty twenty, and I've been going through and like painstakingly like hand editing it, which was what friends recommended. And now I'm going through and digitally editing it to make like a, a second draft to hopefully show someone and ask them like, hey, is this anything? Right. But yeah, it's fun to work on and and kind of what we talked about like you know days where you feel good about what you're doing and days that you don't. There are definitely days where I wake up and I'm just like, yes, this is going to be something. Like, this is great. There are other days where I'm looking at that binder going, but this is, yeah, I should light this on fire. <laughs> just starting. I should let no one ever read this. But yeah, editing that, working on some shorter form stuff, posting on Medium, which I made, uh, I, I recently discovered I made a whole two cents. Wow. On Medium through paid views. Oh, wow. So, big, big bucks coming in here. <laughs> it, can only, it can only go up from here. Only go up from here. That's awesome, man. That's so cool. I can't wait to read it someday. Yeah, I will absolutely. If it ever goes anywhere, I'm gonna post about this everywhere. Oh yeah. Put flyers up. I'll be I'll be that guy on the street in Times Square, just like handing out next to the lady in the Chicago outfit, yeah. in her stockings in the middle of winter. Yeah. Oh man, thank you so much for joining me, man. I I had such a great time getting to know you. I really appreciate you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you too. I think what you're what you're doing with this podcast and, and, and trying to get a message of just good overall out there um, and talking about these these feelings of, of doubt and insecurity especially among among men is, is a really important thing to get in the habit of I think um, I'm very lucky to have like a solid you know half dozen male friends that have no problem talking about those sort of things but like I absolutely know guys that are just so detached from those sort of conversations that like it's just important even if it helps one person. Like, that, that's so it, important. man. That's all That's all I ever want. I appreciate you saying that so much. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And yeah, yeah, I, I'm i lucky to know you that you came into my life. And uh, I'm very excited to just continue to get to know you. And, and we got to meet up in a safe way pretty soon and just uh, try to hang out or something. Please. Yeah. Maybe sometime this summer we can actually sit at the same table. <laughs> have a drink or something and it won't be in a bubble or something it won't be in a bubble <laughs> yeah. all right have a good night man you too have a good one Sharing feet.